How about if you uh, have a Bible with you, uh, maybe you have it electronically or you have a hard copy, if you take it out and go to the book of Luke. We keep staying in Luke because so many of the parables are in Luke that we've been working through. This one happens to be in Luke 18. If you're at home, go ahead and download the notes now if you haven't done that already. And if maybe you paid attention to when Sam was doing the announcements earlier. She mentioned the QR code. Um, within that, if you use that QR code, you're able to bring up the notes as well on there electronically if you'd like to do that. But they're still available as a hard copy. If you want a hard copy of the notes, they're back there by the pillar back there. Feel free to get up and grab a set of those if you didn't get one. Um, this begins the fourth, fourth section of the parable. So the book that you're going to need for that, uh, these are free, by the way, and these are on the table back in the atrium. There's a table full of them. You may have picked up the other three over the course of the last year. Yep, we've been in this for a year now. Um, this is uh, the setup for the last 10 or 11 of the parables that we've worked through. Um, Rich Bruce and his team began working on these almost two years ago now, laying out the, the groundwork for it. You're going to think, based on the material that we're going through um, this morning, that I'm the smartest guy in the world because you're going to think that I chose this months in advance for this particular morning. And I didn't. Uh, God did. I, I had no idea that this was going to land where it landed at this point in time in this passage that we're about to look at, and I'm excited to go through it with you. Because in Luke 18, it really emphasizes this one truth, and I, I'm getting ready for you to say your amen, so get your amen on. Jesus is coming again. Amen. It's a great reality, a great truth, a great promise, a tremendous promise to us that God is on the throne and, and book four begins that way. It starts out with the parables. Let me restate for you the purpose of the parables. Jesus uses parables to teach us about who we are before God, who God is, what the kingdom in eternity is like, what God's kingdom is like here on earth, and how we can understand and put those things in the context of real human terms. And that's why he uses the parables the way that he does. Now, just before this particular parable, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, as a result, because the attention is so heavily focused on him, and it's only weeks before the crucifixion, Jesus leaves the region that he's in, and geographically, he goes north, north of Jerusalem. And he's on what we would call the rim country, the borderline of Galilee. And he stays there, and he waits for a period of time before making the final journey towards Jerusalem. Now, Luke records him teaching in that setting, and he's discussing the second coming, and he's discussing last day's events, and he's very specific about the things that he describes. So chapter 18 starts out with a really direct statement by Luke saying in verse 1, now he was telling them a parable, and it's a pretty straightforward description by Luke. But we have to ask, what brought about this very moment? Well, I'm going to ask you just before we get into Luke 18 to look with me on the screen at Luke 17. That's where we were at last week. And this is the last part of Luke 17. Jesus begins describing the last days. And he says in verse 26, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, this way he lays the groundwork. We, we know if you know the Bible, what happened during the days of Noah, people were moving to and fro. They weren't paying any attention to God. They were doing as they saw fit in their own eyes, and Jesus is setting up this description, and then he says this in verse 30, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. 
So Jesus has been in conversation, and He's instructing people on last day's things, especially about the second coming. And that tone sets the stage for this parable. And we ask, as people who would follow after God, okay, if I get this information, what does He want me to do with it? What's my response supposed to be? What's my responsibility to this information? Well, he tells us right away in verse 1 of Luke 18. Let me take you there now. Now, he was telling them a parable. Why? To show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. So Luke chapter 18, verse 1, gives us the objective right up front. That we are to pray at all times and not to lose heart. And he goes into verse 2. Verse 2, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now, verse 2, we can make an assumption there, and the assumption is this. Jesus is speaking to people who live in Israel, and so therefore they're envisioning a typical city in Israel. He doesn't say what city. He just says there's a city, a certain city, and in that city we meet a judge who has rejected God. We might say atheistic, a person who's rejected God and has no regard for humanity. That's a pretty straightforward description. He's presenting the most wicked person imaginable. Well, why would I say that? Because he has zero interest in God and zero interest in humanity. That's a pretty wicked person. And you might be tempted to wonder if such a person actually exists. Well, I, I, especially in positions of power, I promise you they did then and they do now. Persons who have no regard for God and no regard for humanity whatsoever. Actually, many ancient societies, not just biblical Israel, many societies had really severe penalties for unjust judges. And the reason they had severe penalties for them is because they were dealing with unjust judges. So they put penalties in place for people who had no regard for humanity whatsoever, who became corrupted after they were on the bench. Now, under Old Testament law, in Israel specifically, Judges were commanded to fear God. And logically, you would think, well, you, you would want a judge on the bench who's interpreting the law to not fear God, especially because they're judging those who break God's laws. Well, in their same way, there was this expectation that those same judges would also defend the oppressed. Now, just put the picture in your mind this way. Can you imagine having a pastor of a church who wouldn't ever open the Bible? who would never teach God's Word, who had no care for humans whatsoever. Well, it's kind of the same thing when you describe a judge in Israel who's supposed to be judging people according to God's law, who has no interest in God whatsoever and no interest in humans. That's kind of the setting. So this one in our story is not moved by reverence for God and not moved by compassion. So he has no interest in God, and especially no interest in the second command of God. The second command is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? And he has no interest in those kind of things. So that's a wicked man. And his wickedness is compounded by the fact that he's in the role of a judge, and he has to render his judgments in regard to the laws of God and the needs of people. And since he's not either one of those, Jesus characterizes him 
as an unrighteous judge. And it's not just because it calls him that in verse 6. Just let your eyes drift down and you'll see verse 6, he's actually called an unrighteous judge. But here's how we arrive at this conclusion before you ever get to verse 6. Because of the word that Jesus uses in verse 2. He says he did not fear God. Let me put this on the screen for you. You know the word phobia. Phobeo is a Greek word. You see it in your notes this morning. And you see the descriptions. Phobia in the English language comes from this Greek word phobeo. And it literally is describing someone who's to be alarmed, to be in awe of. Well, he doesn't have any of that. There's none of that in his life, especially towards the things of God. That's not who he is. And if that's not bad enough, look at his actions towards humanity with this next Greek word. We say in verse 2, he did not respect man. You see that? That word entrepo. The Greek word that goes with that, in a bad sense, to confound or to shame, let me explain that to you. It means to put to shame. Here's what you've been learning through the parables. The Middle East is an honor-shame culture. In an honor-shame culture, you avoid everything that might bring possible shame to yourself or to your family. And you would embrace everything that would bring honor to your family. You are involved in an honor-shame society, and so you do the things that bring honor to you, and you avoid the things that bring shame. Well, this particular word, entrepo, is talking about the fact that he can't be put to shame because he's got so much arrogance in his life. I'm right, and everyone else is wrong. That's his attitude. You might say there's no shame in his behavior because he has no regard for others, no interest and no compassion. Now, it's remarkable that not only is this his mindset, he knows it, and he's good with it. This is his stance. Look with me at verse 4. We're not quite there yet, but I'll put this on the screen for you. He said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man. So we know, already know that's how God sees him. But he's saying this about himself. He personally views himself this way, and he's good with it. So this is someone who's deeply aware, deeply conscious of his attitude toward God and his conclusions regarding God. Therefore, Jesus says his humanity view is linked with that. Because he's got that view of God, he's got that view of humans. This is a crucial distinction. You need to get this in order to get this story. That Jesus links these two characteristics is vital. You have a highly educated person in a really important position with total disregard for God. It's logical that that attitude would lead to massive repercussions in regard towards his view towards people, the ones over whom he has responsibility, especially those who come into his courtroom. Because without a fear for God as the starting point, it's absurd in the extreme to believe that anyone would have any regard for human life. You have to start there. If you don't view God high and holy, you're not going to view humans with any regard. Uh, just a little bit of detail for you in the background of this. In his position, this particular judge would be a judge in a civil court. And there were many of these courts all over Israel. And if you were in one village, there would be at least one courtroom. But in a big city like Jerusalem, there'd be multiple courtrooms. There'd be many judges because there were many cases to be tried. 
So every little town had to have at least one. Jerusalem had many. And sometimes there were so many needed that they actually set tents up for them to meet in if there weren't enough courtrooms for them to meet in. In this reality, any Israelite judge would be incredibly familiar with God's view of a judge's responsibilities. It was incumbent upon them when they took the oath of office to actually uphold the things that God called them to. Now, I'm just going to read to you from 2 Chronicles for just a minute because this goes all the way back to chapter 19. And Jehoshaphat is king on the throne over Jerusalem. And I want to put this up on the screen for you in verse 5. It, it says that Jehoshaphat went out among the people of Jerusalem. And he, he said this to the judges, verse 5. And he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. And jump down to verse 7. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or injustice or partiality or the taking of a bribe. So the king of the nation is saying that to the judges way back in the Old Testament. That verse was well known and carried forward into the time that Jesus is in. Judges who sit on the throne know that's God's standard. But remarkably... The judges had become so corrupt that they actually had a change in their name. Alfred Edersheim is a, a long since past theologian. He, he died back in the late 1800s. In 1896, he wrote a book on the life of times of Christ, and it's very famous historical research. And one of the things that he noted in his book is that the judges were viewed as individuals, as those who upheld the law until around the time of the later part of the end of the B.C. era, we would think of, the time just before Christ, and coming into the first century, the people of Israel actually changed their name and began calling them robber judges because these judges were corrupted by bribes. They were unrighteous. They had come to this period of time where they began taking in money for verdicts. Some were so perverted that they began changing their position on particular verdicts for the price of just one meal. Now, I saw this in Africa. We were traveling with a missions team in Kenya uh, seven, eight years ago, and we were moving outside of Kenya, uh, outside of Nairobi, going to a, a specific area about two hours, three hours away from Nairobi, and our taxi was pulled over. It was a van that we were in with about nine people or so. And the police officers came up behind us and in front of us. And, and the driver said to us very quickly, and he'd become a friend of ours that week, and had said to us, don't say anything. Don't, don't move. Don't get out of the vehicle. Just let me do the talking. And so we pulled off to the side, and these two police officers encircled the van, and they began looking in the window, and they're tapping on the glass, and they want us to show our ID, and we all did. And and then he comes to the driver and begins saying things in his ear. And the driver turns and looks at us, and uh, he says, just wait, be, be patient. And the officer goes back to his vehicle, and he calls in whatever he needed to call into the office. And the driver, during that period of time, turned around and said to us, when he comes back, don't say a word. Don't let him know you have any money on you. And he does indeed come back to the door. The window comes back down again, and the driver hands him the equivalent of about $40. And he gets in his vehicle and drives away. 
And then the driver turns to us and says, do you guys notice what time it is? And we looked, and it was about 20 minutes to noon. He said, this guy wants to go to lunch, and he wanted you to pay for it. And so he was going to impound our vehicle unless we gave him money. That's a, a robber judge in that setting. It happened to be a, a robber police officer who was going to give us a bogus ticket because he wanted to be paid off. You see that going on in our world today. Well, in this setting in the first century, the judge set the agenda, and he sat royally upon his bench. He's imposing law from this seat, and he's surrounded by assistance, and anybody could watch it externally. Anybody could watch it from the position they're in from the outside, but only those who are approved could have their case heard. And to be heard often meant paying off the assistants who were sitting with the judge in order for them to bring your case before the judge for it to be heard. So Jesus has painted this image of a judge with no sense of justice, no fear of God, no respect for man, and unfortunately what follows is all too familiar to the people of Israel, especially in relation to widows. They've had extensive experience by this point with unjust judges. Go with me to verse 3. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. Now, that she keeps coming, and it's a highly repetitive verb in the Greek language, points to a, a really major component in the backdrop of this story. Somebody has defrauded her. Somebody has taken whatever her husband had set aside for her. If, if it wasn't the case, she wouldn't be seeking legal protection. In her case, her opponent has been extremely egregious in his actions towards her, and it's left her destitute. She has nothing. And to be a widow in the first century was hard enough as it was, let alone to be in this place where you have to go to trial. She has no provision except what her deceased husband may have set aside for her. We don't even know what that is, but she has only that. Here's how we know that. She also has no other men in her life. The world of the first century, the court systems were exclusively the realm of men. It's still true in the Middle East today that women are not held with the regard that they're held with here in the West. And in this period of time, women didn't have a right to go into the court system. That was the world of men. Women were not allowed in the court. The only time a woman was able to come to court is if there was no male to represent her. So in her case, there's no brother-in-law, there's no father, there's no brother, no nephew, no son, that's why you find her there alone, and she's pleading before the judge. So she's in a desperate situation. She has to have what is rightfully hers, and her survival depends upon this. So this woman is the ultimate example of the oppressed. She can't even afford a bribe. She just has to keep coming before the judge saying, I need you to hear me on this. So it's obvious, even though it's unstated, she's got the law on her side, she obviously has been wronged, and that's why she's asking for legal protection. The land or the money that's been taken from her was all that she had. So she kept saying, justify me in this. Make my complaint righteous. Vindicate me. You have to hear me on this. And even a poor quality judge, at least on the basis of human decency, would do something for her. But Jesus says, this one is so bad, 
He has nothing but contempt for her. He's utterly indifferent. So look at the beginning of verse 4. For a while he was unwilling. The Greek language says that there's absolutely no emotion. That word unwilling means there's no compassion, even towards a destitute widow. No compassion whatsoever, no shame. We'll play back into that word we were thinking of earlier. No shame, you can't shame them into it. But Jesus says, however, there's a crack in the ice. Something's about to change here. There's a change in the circumstances. Go back to verse 4 again. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, in, in other words, in spite of being previously unconcerned, he does care for what pleases him. And what's going on in his courtroom does not please him right now. Verse 5, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. It's intrusive into his very ordered world. The Greek language is really clear. He's saying, she's irritating me, and it isn't stopping. It's so intrusive. Uh, let me read to you uh, from the Greek language a more literal translation of this. It reads this way. Because this widow troubleth me, I will do justice for her, lest in the end coming she bruise me. It's like the concept of doing personal violence to me, like punching me. I'll come back to that in just a second. So every day she's there. Every day she's pleading her case. I need legal protection. And he says back, I, I will give her legal protection because she won't stop coming. And if I don't get rid of her, she's going to wear me out. So let's just bear down on those five words. She will wear me out. It's actually kind of a fun phrase here. How many of us have ever given in to a nagging child? All right? I didn't expect you to raise your hands, but okay, we're good with that. We all understand that if you've had children in your life in any form. You know what it is to go down the wrong aisle in the store. And all of a sudden you hear, please, please, please. I don't want anything else for the rest of my life. I just want that. Right? We know what it is. You know what it is to have a nagging child. Well, this kind of the image is being presented here. The, the Greek verb that goes with this comes from the world of boxing. And in the world of boxing, this particular word you see next in the Greek language comes up on your screen, hupapapizo. It means to hit someone under the eye. When he says that she may do physical harm to me, he's not actually thinking she's going to come up and sock him in the eye. But it's so painful that she won't stop. She's constantly coming before him. She's not just troublesome. She's painful to the degree it's more than I can stand. Really important that you get this image, image in, your, in your head. He's saying she's not going away. So you have a judge with no regard for God, no regard for humanity, and has been softened and defeated through persistence. Now that's where the parable stops. And then Jesus picks up and begins amplifying why he even told the parable. Go with me to the next verse, verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. This, this is Jesus saying, are you paying attention? Did you hear that? Did you hear what the unrighteous judge just said? We hear Jesus. We, we have this image, but what's the intent? 
What is he compelling us to do in response to this information? Go back with me to verse 1. Let me put this back on the screen for you. Look with me again. Verse 1, maybe just let your eyes drift up up the page. He's telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Them. To show them. Who's the them? The, The them is his followers. The them is you. He's been talking to them about the second coming, about the return of the king. He's been having the last day's conversation. Just before this, he said, the Son of Man is coming back and it's going to flash across the sky and it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah and everyone's going to see it. It's going to be like lightning from one end of the sky to the other. And, And he's coming to set up his kingdom And there will be massive judgment on the earth. And he's coming to establish righteousness where there has been unrighteousness. That's why chapter 17 is so important to setting up chapter 18. He's been talking about the future. In the world of Bible study, it's called eschatology. Eschatology has to do with the second coming, the return of Jesus, because, get ready, church, Jesus is coming again. So that's why he keeps saying this over and over and over again. But in the time between the first coming and the second coming, and you and I live in that time period right now, we are those who are not to lose heart. We are those he's talking about in verse 1. Even though the events of this world might be really dark, Jesus has won the victory, right? He's already won the victory, and your victor has a view of the future in which he says, with that view of the future, you need to be in fervent prayer persistently. Why? To ask the judge to bring about justice. Going before the judge, continually, not giving up, persistently saying, will you bring justice? Will you right things on this earth? So Jesus goes with verse 7. Verse 7, now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? This is a standard Jewish argument from lesser to greater. This is the way the ancient world of the Jews worked. Paul used this a lot, and especially you might remember this in Romans. Paul often said, how much more? Because he was comparing the lesser to the greater. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here, arguing it this way. If an unjust judge who cared not even for a widow can dispense justice, how much more? Will the judge of all the earth, the true defender of widows and orphans, that one? That's that's the key to understanding the story, asking yourself that question. Is God a just judge or an unjust judge? He's just. We would absolutely say there's no injustice in him. Well, Jesus' argument from the lesser to greater is this. If an earthly judge will do what is right for one for whom he has no affection whatsoever, what will a loving God do for the precious elect of the Lamb, those who are deeply loved by him since the foundation of the world? 
how much more? I, I want you to zoom out for just a minute with me and think of this in a big picture, 30,000 foot view. Remember, this is just weeks before the crucifixion, meaning it's just weeks before the resurrection. Jesus knew a long era of time would pass before the return of the king. He's got his followers right in front of him who are going to suffer persecution. They're going to suffer tribulation. They're going to go through hard times. During this intervening period of time that's now been 2,000 years, we understand we're in 2020. It's been a long time since Jesus has gone, and Christians have been treated with persecution and have been treated with hostility and, in some cases, death. There have been millions that have gone on before us. We're suffering the persecution of a hostile environment that Satan has brought about on this earth. And during this time frame, we're longing for the return of the king. We want the king to come and to destroy the reign of Satan and to set up his kingdom. We want that. But in that intervening period of time, from the first coming to the second coming, Jesus is saying, keep praying to that end. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart when you're going through tough times. Verse 7, will not God bring about justice for you? Well, absolutely he will. And then he finishes with that obscure statement that you could easily misinterpret. Will he delay long over them? How do I understand that? It's, it's, it's better translated this way. Be patient over them. Well, who's he talking about there? Question, church. Is not God exercising patience right now? Yeah, absolutely. He told Moses that he's a God who is long-suffering. It's 2,000 years since Jesus left. And people can cast aspersions saying, you really think he's going to return? You've you got to be crazy. And you can become weary wondering, when is that going to happen? We live in a long era between the first coming and the second coming, and during this period of time, God is exercising extreme patience because he's not willing that any would perish. So Jesus is saying during this long period of time when he's being patient, don't give up because Jesus is coming again, but in the meantime, understand he's being patient. And mockers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? And they'll be the deniers. And yep, you will be ridiculed for saying Jesus is coming again. Don't lose heart. And you'll see the pollution of rampant sin. And you'll see chaos and false teachers will abound. Don't lose heart. And yeah, we, we endure a culture that is intentionally moving further and further and further away from God. Jesus says, don't lose heart. During that period of time, it's not surprising him. New Hope, we know God's word is true. Say amen if you agree with that. We know it. He cannot lie. He said he's coming again, so therefore he's coming again. So here he's saying, just keep your eyes on the horizon. 
Is it keep the long view, pray for strength to not lose heart because he will bring justice, but you have a responsibility in the meantime. And then he ends it with verse 8. Remember what he said in verse 7? Now will not God bring about justice? Verse 8 says, I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly, meaning suddenly. I'll come back to that in just a second. He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Bible says quickly or it says soon, remember this even when you're reading the book of Revelation, it doesn't mean like in 60 seconds kind of soon. It means when it happens, it happens suddenly. So when he says he will bring about justice for them quickly, it means when it happens, boom, 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 it'll happen in a rapid succession of events. That's what he's talking about here. But until that moment, Jesus is commanding us, you see it in verse 1, consistently pray. Therefore, here's a takeaway for you this morning, prayerlessness is disobedience. If you're not coming before the judge of all the earth and saying, will you bring justice, even though he's commanded you to do that, if you're not doing that, that's disobedience. So the thought here is of a continual mindset, not a continual functional prayer. We're not talking about walking around repeating empty words over and over and over again that have absolutely no meaning. Jesus warned us against doing that. What does the Bible mean when it says always to pray? It doesn't mean continually repeating empty words. Rather, here's what it means. It means prayer should be as natural as breathing. Whatever setting you're in, even driving down the road, even when you're pulled over by a police officer in Kenya, and you throw up a prayer, God, rescue us from this. You don't know what's coming. It can be a simple 30-second prayer. It can be right here in the quietness of your seat. God, will you bring justice? Bring it now, God. It's, it's the mindset of coming before the Father that your life is living in such a, a holy way that you don't mind in any moment coming before him. The only thing that keeps us from coming before him is when we're living in an unholy way and we feel guilt and therefore we step back from a prayer life. Prayer is intended to be a habitual mindset. So when the Bible says pray without ceasing, it means having such holy desires that you're comfortable in your petition to the Father in any setting, whether it's at home or in the office or in your car, no matter where you're at. The day is coming when he will establish his throne on the earth and he will reign with a rod of justice. And that's what you're to be praying for relentlessly while in the midst of that, you're praying for strength, strength that you don't lose heart when you're saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's why you find the writers of Scripture saying it that way. But Jesus ends with an alarm bell. You caught that in that last phrase. He's saying there's a potential that some will lose heart. That's why he asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find those who are as faithful as that widow? Will he find those who are that persistent, pleading for the return of the king? Will that be the case? Jesus is asking, when he does come, given that it's going to be a long period of time, will there be those who are persistent like this widow, praying for the return, or will we be like those in Noah's day, 
so preoccupied with the things of the world, so consumed with what culture is doing, that when the rains came, they were caught unaware. That's why he used what he did in verse 17 to talk about, or in chapter 17 about Noah. You and I have been given a tremendous promise. Yes, it's been 2,000 years, but our hope burns bright because our confidence is in the God who makes the promises. And he can be trusted. He can take it to the grave. He keeps his word. So, even so, come, Lord Jesus, right? Let that be on your lips on a continual basis and see if it doesn't change your attitude. Try it this week. Try it. I'm going to pray for you right now. Father, I thank you for this time together, even though our time together was short. You've left us with profound words. You always do that. God, you are faithful to challenge us, and you push us where we need to be pushed. I pray that as we take on this week, it'll hold challenges we don't even expect. Father, remind us again that you're in control, that you sit on the throne, and there is a day when you will bring righteousness and justice upon this earth. Thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' majestic name, all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.